We're going to finish Mark on Wednesday night. I read over and thought about and prayed through chapter 16 and uh, couldn't get out of chapter 15. So we're going to do that one more time, and I think it's an appropriate conclusion to our study through the Gospel of Mark. Joel Rosenberg on his blog yesterday wrote, We are in many respects in a moral and spiritual freefall in our country. And we are paying a terrible price. People ask, how can such a thing happen as happened in Newtown, Connecticut? The elementary school there, Sandy Hook Elementary School, uh, 20 children were killed in that shooting. You all have no doubt heard about this, watched the news. Uh, it's just gut-wrenching. It's the worst school shooting. I mean, this, this surpasses the Columbine shootings. And it's, it seems to be worse because it's 20 children. I do want to offer just this word of comfort, and it is a hard word of comfort to understand unless you are considering it from a God perspective. When people ask, where was God when this was going on? My answer is he was right there receiving those little ones home. Now, from a worldly perspective, it's like, well, but but what good is that? I'll tell you what good that is. These children will never know sin. These children will never know pain. These children will never know heartache. They will never know terror. They will never know the horrors and the difficulties of life in this world. They have nothing but joy and peace and the presence of Jesus Christ. So where was God? He was there receiving the kids. We know it's a tragedy. We know it's a horrific thing that happened. And when we see these kinds of things happening, the problem is not... The issue is not gun control. The issue is is not school security. The issue goes much deeper than that. It is the depth of human depravity. And it's the fact that these things are darker, are getting worse. Some say, oh, that's just because of the 24-hour news cycle. We're just more aware of it now. No, I'll give you some statistics in a minute to show you that it is worse. That it is more brutal. That, that if you're looking around saying, man, it just doesn't seem like things like this used to happen. They didn't. Not on this scale. And it is because, as Rosenberg said, we're in a moral and spiritual free fall in our country and we're paying a terrible price. And that's the the line of connection, the dots that the world cannot connect, is how we get to here. What does that have to do with something like not allowing a manger scene in the public square? I mean, big deal. The war on Christmas, you know. Oh, big deal. Who really cares about that? And then something like this happens, and people cannot draw a connection. We have trouble drawing a connection between the protection and the covering of our Lord over schools as they prayed to Him, and how that covering of protection is lifted when schools are no longer allowed to pray to Him. There is a connection. And we've talked about how often in our world people secularize things. We have our spiritual life and we have our physical life, you know, which has our business life and our family life, and these are all separate events. What I do out there is different than what I do in here. No, it's not. It's not. You have one life that you live and it is all interconnected and so your relationship with Jesus affects and impacts every aspect of your life whether you want it to or not. And again, our country has a real hard time seeing that right now because government 
and interest groups have tried so hard to push out anything that would bring the kind of covering and protection and grace that God would give this nation. We need to look beyond ourselves. That is the only answer to situations like that. We need to look to our only hope. And we only have one, and His name is Jesus. So let's look at Him again this morning. Mark chapter 15, verse 24. One verse for you this morning. I'm going to wander a bit. Permit me to do so, but we're going to come back to this one verse. Mark 15, 24. And they crucified Him and divided up His garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. Father, we read a verse that is the moment that changed the world. It is the moment that altered literally the course of eternity. A moment you determined in the times before time, in the, in the ancient of times, from the times long past, from old eternity. That moment that you determined that you would prove once and for all your grace. That you would reveal the depth of your love and your very nature, Father, in that moment when Jesus was crucified. And we consider this again because, Lord, it is so critical to our hearts to understand. To see Jesus on the cross and to know what that means. And I pray we might know that a little better this morning. I pray for your spirit to be our guide. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, you all did really well with the uh, the Charles Wesley Christmas hymn that we did, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. How many of you have sung that before, know that song? I was impressed. I thought I was going to have to teach it, and you all did phenomenally well. I'd never heard it before. I grew up in California, you know. What can I say? An old Christmas song by Charles Wesley. Well, Charles Wesley was a prolific songwriter. John Wesley, his brother, was the preacher. You know, the great preacher. But the Wesley brothers together inspired a revival, an awakening in England that crossed the Atlantic and spurred the great awakening in those days in America. Charles Wesley wrote over 6,500 hymns. Amazing. And, and if you go back and read the words, and they're so rich, they literally are dripping with Scripture. In 1739, he wrote, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Amazing that it's still beloved today. We still sing that song. Every, every December rolls around, and that song is being sung. It's being heard, you know, even on secular TV. The Charlie Brown gang sing it every year. <laughs> Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. You know, there are a couple verses in that song that we don't typically sing. Verses 3 and 4. Part of the third verse you'll recognize, but the rest is just, wow. Listen to this. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Now display thy saving power. Ruined nature now restore. Now in mystic union join. Thine to ours and ours to thine. And I like this verse. Adam's likeness, Lord efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. 
Let us be the lost regain, thee the life, the inner man. O to all thyself impart, formed in each believing heart. Wow. You can go almost word for word in that and attach verse after verse after verse of of teaching in that marvelous song. Now, it's not the kind of verses or the kind of carol you might imagine singing while hanging stockings and sipping cider. Okay, it's not light-hearted fare. It is deep and spiritual and meaningful, doctrinally rich, these lyrics. And they call us truly to a place of worship. But that most familiar line is the line I want to have us listen to again, perhaps have it ring in our heads, even as we leave here today. Come, desire of nations, come. Come, desire of nations, come. Wesley is referring to a line spoken by the prophet Haggai. Chapter 2, verse 6. Let me just read this to you. I'm going to read the King James Version. It's, it's a, I think, the most uh, literal and exact and precise translation. In this uh, instance, at least, he says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations... And the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Haggai was prophesying and preaching about 16 years after the first group of people were released from Babylon. Haggai came back with that first group. Would be in Israel, in Jerusalem. At the time of the rebuilding of the temple, the foundation was laid. And much of Haggai's prophecy is about spurring the people on to finish the job. Get the temple finished. Uh, Through the prophet Haggai, the Lord would say, you all are now living in your nice appointed houses while my house sits unfinished. So that was much of the encouragement. Uh, It's a very short prophecy. Take us a week or two when we get there to, to go through it. But the prophet is is speaking and the Lord is talking at that time. The temple is going up. Or perhaps it is up at that time. But as the temple is rising, the Lord declared, I will fill this house with glory. I'll fill the house with glory. Now, we know that His glory filled the first temple. Solomon's temple. We know from 2 Chronicles 5.13 and and 7 uh, verse 3 that that Shekinah glory, which speaks of that bright cloud of the glory of God, came in and literally filled the temple. On dedication day, as Solomon dedicates the temple and the priests are in there beginning their work, and the Shekinah glory of God was so rich, so thick, you know the story, they had to leave, they had to get out. They couldn't do their work that day because God's presence was so heavy and so rich and so intense, filling the entire temple. But I ask you this question. When was the second temple ever filled with His glory? He he says, The desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory. The answer is, the second temple was filled with the glory of the Lord when Jesus entered in. Well, when was that? Look over a couple of pages from where you are in Mark to Luke chapter 2, verse 21. Luke 2.21 Luke writes, When eight days had passed, His name was then called Jesus, Yeshua. 
the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written, in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. By the way, that was the sacrifice of a poor couple, of an impoverished person. A couple of turtle doves or two young pigeons indicating the state of Joseph and Mary as they brought Jesus. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, or Shimon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord... You are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Listen, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And I suggest to you that in that moment, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. In the person of Jesus Christ. Come, desire of nations, come. I will shake the nations, God says, and the desire of all nations shall come. I will fill this house with glory. And so what does that mean? It means when we sing, come desire of nations, come, we're singing to and about Jesus. That Jesus Christ is in and of Himself the desire of all nations. But we've got to take it a step further because the prophecy in Haggai is partially fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus. It is completely and wholly fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus. The desire of all nations. Psalm 2, verse 8, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance to the very ends of the earth as your possession. The Father promises the Son. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, It will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways and that we may walk in His paths. The prophet Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10 said, In that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 17. At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord. Nor will they walk any more after the stubbornness of their evil heart. So obviously, we're speaking when the glory of the Lord comes, the desire of all nations come, we're speaking of a time yet future because there has never been a time when Jesus was the desire of all nations. God promised this will come, that Jesus will be the desire. But a lot of people are beginning to wonder about the desire of our nation. Is Jesus Christ the desire of this nation? When He's ignored in our schools at Christmas time? You know, when nativities are nixed from the public square? 
And some, again, might say, how com- can you compare such trivial things when such a brutal massacre of innocents just took place? Then I repeat to you, when sin is flaunted, when rebellion is honored, when depravity is celebrated, is it any wonder that we see such depravity rise up as we did on Friday? Well, Rick, is it really worse than it's ever been? A recent FBI report says violence in America's small towns has increased 18.3% this year. That's just this year. Since 1960, violent crime in the United States of America has increased 460%. So, news cycle or not, our awareness of these tragedies or not, we know statistically speaking, that violent crime is on the rise like it hasn't been in 50 years. And gang sin always expresses itself violently. That's that's always the end of sin. When you think about that, any sin ultimately ends in violence and death. That's where it all goes. Come, desire of nations, come. The problem is we don't always know what we desire. Human beings can be pretty clueless about what we need. In fact, we're a lot like the soldiers at the foot of the cross. I think about last week, Anna Marie, uh, all of our kids, we, we have to get going early when it comes to the Christmas list in our house. With six kids, it's a challenge. So normally we try to start about mid-May uh, to get that work done. <laughs> Last week, we had nothing, no idea from Anna Marie. What, you know, just because, of course, we want to feed the greed in our family. What do you want? <laughs> you know, Anna Marie hasn't a clue. She's like, I don't know. I don't know what to ask for. Until Cheryl took her to Walmart and was like, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. <laughs> we can sit, gang, in the very presence of the greatest gift ever given and still not know what to ask for and still be completely oblivious to Him, again, like the soldiers on the cross. And they crucified Him, and divided up His garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. Now it might sound a little strange, but the clothing and belongings of a crucified criminal was considered, in essence, the soldier's gratuity. Now Rome said the soldiers can take whatever they want. You know, you do the job, you take them out there, because, and it would take normally a four-man squadron to take out the uh, criminal, lead him out to the cross, get him on the cross, nailed up, cross up, and then once the work was done, then they'd sit down. And, and so their gratuity, their honorarium, if you will, their tips for a job well done would be whatever possessions, belongings, or clothing happened to be in the uh, person or on the person of the criminal who was crucified. And so these soldiers at the foot of the cross begin to gamble over Jesus' clothes, over what belongings they could get out of it. And as they did so, a couple things to note this morning, they played right into a prophetic fulfillment. Unbeknownst to them, they, these soldiers, were fulfilling biblical prophecy. The typical Jewish man's daily attire consisted of five components. Five parts to it. A turban for the head, sandals for the feet, 
an inner robe, and the inner robe would usually be uh, made of a cool linen or soft cotton, and it was full length and, and typically went out to the full uh, length of the arms all the way down to the ankles, the inner robe. A tunic, and the tunic was a heavier woven garment that was sleeveless, uh, typically knee length, and most often worn on the outside of the robe. So you had the full-length robe underneath, the tunic on top. And finally, the fifth aspect of the clothing was a sash or a belt that was thick and was then tied around the outside of the tunic. And this would be the typical garb of the day. Well, there at the crucifixion, you've got the four-man squad of soldiers, but you have five, most likely, articles of clothing. And so they're gambling over. They divide them up, one to each man. Well, that's four. And so there's a fifth garment here. And as they settle in to keep watch, that's when the game playing begins. From the soldier's perspective, all they have to do now, their work is done, they just have to make sure no one causes a problem or tries to rescue the person or whatever. So they just kind of sit there and keep watch. And they might keep watch for three or four or five days. So they had to keep themselves busy and they gambled. They played. They enjoyed a game or two. So they're casting lots. Perhaps part two of the game of the king that we talked about last week. They roll the sheep knuckles. And one gets the turban and one gets the sandals. And a third takes the sash. And a fourth soldier takes the inner robe. But the fifth article of clothing belonging to Jesus was the tunic. The tunic. And this is the one that they didn't want to divide up for the material's sake, but they wanted to keep it whole. Why? John tells us, John 19.23, The soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took His outer garments and made four parts, a part for every soldier. And also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless and woven in one piece. John describes something here, a seamless, woven in one piece tunic, which indicates a unique craftsmanship in the day, a very unique article of clothing. Woven in one piece, this is a beautiful article, a nice piece, probably given to Jesus as a gift. Because remember, Jesus had nothing. He had no money of His own. He had no place to call His own. He didn't have the college degree. He didn't have the job in the workplace. He didn't have the place to rest His head. He was a homeless man. And so He has this beautiful, woven, seamless tunic, very, very nice by the standards of the day, and so they said to one another, John 19.24, Let us not tear it. Let's cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four tell this story. They all four have a verse or two that talks about the soldiers at the foot of the cross gambling over the clothes of Jesus. Only John directly ties it to the prophecy. Saying this fulfilled... What the prophet said. Which prophet? David. Where? Psalm 22, verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. An old Psalm of David, Psalm 22, written a thousand years before Jesus would be nailed up to the cross. And it describes this very moment perfectly. It's another one of those, and you Bible students know over 300 prophecies of the first coming of Jesus, and each one and every one He fulfilled, literally, to the letter. And it proves again the certainty and the authenticity of biblical prophecy. 
This is a legitimate book, legitimately proven throughout history and by the prophecies given. As the Lord would say in Isaiah 41.26, Who has declared from the beginning that we might know? Or from the former times that we might say, He's right. Surely there's no one who declared. Surely there's no one who proclaimed. Surely there's no one who heard your words. Not even surely. (laughs) Isaiah 44 verse 7. He says, Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. Let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. See, that's what the Lord did. Through Samuel, through Moses, through David, through the rest of the prophets, the Lord proclaimed what was coming. I like to remind you of this. Don't ever lose the wonder of prophecy. I'm not talking about the vagaries of, of you know, Nostradamus and, and the so-called prophets. They're not prophets if what they, don't, what they say doesn't come true precisely. I'm talking about the wonder of prophecy, which is God having already seen what would take place and sharing it with us. And gang, prophecy is going to be fulfilled again, literally. Just as literally as it was with the first coming, so it will be with His second coming. So the soldiers, they play into a prophetic fulfillment. But the woven tunic is itself of special interest for another reason. And you Bible students heard this a couple of weeks ago on Wednesday. I have to tell everybody about this. It speaks of, number two, a priestly installment. A priestly installment. Go back to chapter 14 and look at verse 61. It tells us Jesus kept silent and did not answer as they're accusing Him. And again, the high priest was questioning Him and saying to Him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Another prophecy, prophecy of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13. Verse 63 tells us, Tearing His clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned Him to be deserving of death. The robe of the high priest. The robe that the high priest tore. It was only torn. It was only rent on one occasion. And that is when the high priest died. It was a symbol signifying the high priest is now dead. Tear the robe. And so when Caiaphas tore his robe, as we discussed recently... He thought he was displaying outrage. In fact, he was inadvertently signaling the Levitical priesthood is dead. I'm the last one. It is over. It is done. It is gone. In the same way, God would grab hold of the veil and rent it in two there in the temple. Right down the middle, signaling signaling an end to the sacrificial system. This is no more. No more will you have to come to me through the blood of animals. No more will you have to have one man, your high priest, come around to the other side of the veil. The veil is gone. The veil is torn. The way is open. And so the priesthood and the priestly sacrifices and work were rendered history. And praise the Lord, we don't go to God through a man anymore. We don't need to go to someone else to stand between us. And please don't ever do that with me. Some of you kind of do. And you really need to think twice about that. My wife can tell you. Don't go through him. 
But even in non-denominational, you know, independent fellowships like this one, there are, there are people who will, you know, i got to get some pastor time. No, you don't. You need Jesus time. Because I am not your mediator. I am not your intermediary. I will, with the other shepherds and other brothers and sisters, intercede for you in prayer, as I hope you will intercede on my behalf in prayer. But we don't go through a man. We go through the man, Jesus Christ. And Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.5, There is one God, one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, the testimony at the proper time. But it's not just how the high priest tore his clothes that is significant. It's what he actually tore. We're told that he tore his clothes. Some translations say he tore his robe. The word is ketone in the Greek. Ketone. And it is the same word used by John to describe the tunic of Jesus that the soldiers gambled over. The high priest tore his tunic, that outer tunic, ripped it, signifying the death of the high priesthood. Jesus' tunic was not divided. Jesus' tunic was not torn. Why didn't they just divide it up? He's the eternal high priest. Hebrews 9.11 says, When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, But through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. But listen, carry this through. Let's take it another step beyond where we did a couple Wednesdays ago. If Jesus is the great high priest, and He is, what does that make you and me as His followers? It makes us a royal priesthood. He's the high priest. We are the royal priesthood, Peter said in 1 Peter 2.9. In Jesus we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we've got to grasp that this priestly ministry is our life calling. It is not the job that you go to on Monday morning. It is not the profession that you trained for. That is not your calling. If you are in Christ, our great high priest, then your calling is to be a priest who proclaims the excellencies of His glory. Who proclaims His marvelous light. Don't miss that. You belong to Jesus You wear the robe of His righteousness. You are clothed with His goodness and His grace and His salvation and His mercy. That's your calling card. That's what we put before the world to see. That's what we talk about. Some people miss it in the church. Some are sitting there gambling on their own ability to win their lives to develop some sort of meaning in their own lives based on what they're doing. And it's a sad contrast to His guarantee that He will provide each and every person who comes to Him with an unwinnable robe. The tunic that Jesus offers, the robe of His grace, is not a robe that you can win. You know this. 
We've talked about it before. Isaiah 61.10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland as a bride adorns herself with jewels. And yet some still gamble with that. They roll the dice. And you know you're doing it. And I know I'm doing it when I start to think that I can win that righteous robe by my own effort. The robe of His righteousness ain't your true religion genes. The robe of His righteousness cannot be bought or sold or won or achieved. Revelation 19 verse 7 tells us, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Did you hear that? We focus so much on the marriage of the Lamb, you know, and the bride in the second half of that verse, but the first half says, let's rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. He goes on to say, it was given to her, to the bride, to the church, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. But don't miss that. Even our righteous acts are given to us. So when you do something good for Jesus, when you proclaim the excellencies of His marvelous light, it's because God gave it to you to do it. It's because God put it on your heart to carry it out. You didn't stir that stuff up. He did. You didn't give yourself the opportunity to proclaim Jesus. God did that. Why? To perform our function as priests. That's our function. We are of the royal priesthood. Revelation 1.6 He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We've talked about how there is a priesthood coming in the coming kingdom. And that we will function, that we will rule and reign with Him as priests in His governance, in His mighty kingdom. But it hit me this week, Revelation 1.6 is talking about right now. The kingdom is coming and we will rule and reign with Him. Yes, in days to come. But Revelation 1.6 says, He has made us to be a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. That is what you are now if you are in Christ Jesus. And so as it were, drawing that parallel, it's like we're wearing the robe of Christ. The, the undivided tunic of His priesthood. He puts on us as a robe of righteousness. Gang, let's wear our faith on our sleeves. Let's get it out there. Out in the open. Perform your priestly function. You are installed to ministry by the great high priest. When I say a priestly installment, I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm talking about you. You have a priestly installment in Him. It's our calling. Prophetic fulfillment, a priestly installment, but there's one more thing you got to see here. And that is, number three, a very personal raiment. A very personal raiment. Back in verse 20, it says, after they had mocked Him, they took the purple robe off of him, which would have been brutal. They put his own clothes, his own garments, back on him, and they led him out to crucify him. So how did they get the garments from the praetorium out to the cross? He wore them. Put them all back on him. And he goes out to the cross. And verse 24, they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. Lane in his 
his commentary on Mark said, men were ordinarily crucified naked. Jewish sensitivities, however, dictated that men ought not to be publicly executed completely naked, and so men condemned to stoning by Jewish law were permitted a loincloth, according to the Sanhedrin tract of the Mishnah. But here's the thing, whether the Romans were considerate of Jewish feelings or not in this matter is unknown. Because Roman crucifixion allowed no clothing to be on the criminal. And i got to tell you, the very idea of Jesus naked on the cross bothered me for years. When I first heard a pastor speak of that on a Sunday morning, I remember, I was young, I was a kid, and I'd always imagine what you see in the movies, the loincloth, or there's some kind of covering on Jesus as He's on the cross. You know, some kind of, at least it's something, you know. And this pastor shares the possibility of Jesus' complete nakedness on the cross, and I just, I was angry as a kid. He just ruined my picture at communion every Sunday. How am I? And Sundays after that, I just go, I can't think about this. I can't look at this. It used to bother me so much that Jesus would be subjected to such shame I could not even imagine until I realized what He was wearing. Until I thought about what He was clothed with. Let me ask you a question. Who did Jesus die for? Just us here this morning? Everybody. Everybody. Every nation. Every tongue. Every tribe. Every person. John says in 1 John 2.2, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Which I've told you before is not universal salvation, it is universal invitation. That the sins of the whole world are paid for. The question is whether or not the world's going to receive that, accept the gift. But Jesus' blood is sufficient to die for, to pay for, to redeem every single human being who ever walked on the face of the earth if they would but turn to Him in faith. What are you saying? I'm saying when Jesus hung on the cross, He was not dressed like a typical Middle Eastern Jew with the five aspects of His clothing. Why not? Because He didn't just die for the typical Middle Eastern Jew. When Jesus hung on the cross, He was dressed in the flesh of Adam. He wore the earth suit of mankind. And you could not see Him as different than anybody else on the cross. He he wouldn't look, you know, like one nationality or like another. He just looked like a man. No different than you, no different than me. No identifying mark clothing-wise on Jesus, but the skin of humanity. And in this attire, this very personal raiment, we see the wide reach of the arms of Jesus, whose desire, His desire, is for all nations. And here's the good news. His desire is for all nations, which includes Iran. His desire is for all nations, which includes Syria which includes the Philippines that just went through a horrible typhoon. 900, I believe, was it, Brian? 900 people killed. And 600 missing. And we finally yesterday, praise the Lord God, an email back from Harvin and Cleofe in Cebu and all the churches there in the Masbati province, they're safe. They're okay. Jesus 
desires for the Philippines. And Jesus' desire, don't give up game, Jesus' desire is for this nation. Though this nation may have turned away from Him, He has not turned away from us. He has a desire for all nations. And the day is fast approaching when the desire of all nations will come. So until then, His desire is for all nations. His passion is for all people. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so there they brought Him to Golgotha. They crucified Him. They divided up His garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. Note that last line, to decide what each man should take. What do you take away from Calvary? What are you going to take from the cross? Some people will take an offense. Others are going to take shreds of religion. They're going to take away from the cross tokens of a hard day's work. They're going to think, well, Jesus did that, so I'm going to do my part, and my part needs to be done, otherwise I'm not going to be saved. But there are those. There are those who come desiring Jesus. And if that's you, He wraps you in a robe of righteousness. And He calls you to your priestly ministry. It is the calling on our hearts today. And that's why royal priesthood, that's why we end Mark on Sunday mornings anyway in this verse. And it's why God calls us to determine to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2, may that be the verse of your life. Lord Jesus, I start right here with myself. You are the desire of my heart. You, Lord Jesus, are the desire of this fellowship. And we long for and we pray that you would be the desire of our nation. That America would turn and and return to you. And that we once again could sing these songs of praise as a country, Lord. And Father, our hearts break for not only what we have seen happen this week, but what we see going on, our hearts break. And I stand up and say, Lord, I love America, but I do not agree with the direction away from You. I do not accept it. You are the desire of our nation. And I pray for this country to turn, but I pray, Father, for every nation of the world. I repent, Lord, because I am—I have been so anti-Iran for the sake of Israel. And I've been watching Syria with kind of a, a strange feeling about it. I, Lord, watching the Palestinian territories. I'm so angry often with what nations and those who would be nations are doing against your people Israel. And Father, I am reminded this morning that your desire is for all nations. And the day is coming when you will be, Lord Jesus, the desire of all nations. When every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth will stream to Jerusalem to see you and to be with you. And I long for that day. But Lord Jesus, we now have a calling and a priesthood to carry out until you come. And I pray you would anoint fresh and new your royal priesthood. Anoint us here this morning, Lord, 
to carry out your ministry and the task to which we have been called. And Father, I pray for anyone who is not believing, anyone who perhaps is at the foot of the cross this morning and kind of gambling with their lives and toying with things, to look up and see You, Jesus Christ, crucified. And Jesus resurrected and made the commitment of faith to follow after You. Lord, we praise You this morning. And we lift You up. Glorify Your name. In Jesus. Amen.